Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Guess what film we're covering tonight? That's what you get for taking Deborah Logan. Shut up and put that kid's head in your mouth. That's what you get for taking Deborah Logan. Woo! Taking Deborah Logan. Oh, I had no idea what to anticipate <laughs> when you said you <laughs> guys. <laughs> welcome to Dark Day of the Podcast, first of all. Uh Troy comes to me. <laughs> And he's and, and he says, I got a jingle. And Troy is not one to normally say something along the lines of I've got a jingle. So I gotta admit, I was hooked immediately. I was like, Troy's got a jingle? Fuck yeah. Let's see it. I had no idea that we were going that big, Troy. You know how much I love the, the song Waking Up in Vegas by Katy Perry. Well, I felt oh. it was fitting. I felt it was fitting because this is our first episode um with me coming from you from las vegas nevada yes so yeah hopefully you enjoyed you know that's why we didn't release an actual regular episode last week we actually released the um our top we released one of our early patreon mini episodes for your listening pleasure about our top picks for our three underrated final girls so hopefully you listen to that if you did and you enjoyed that conversation check out our patreon because there is plenty more where that came from oh i'm plenty more and let me just say troy for me uh because i did listen to it because i forgot about that episode you know there, there's a lot of material now we're closing in on number 80 uh just for regular episodes alone not even including all of this patreon material which there is quite a lot so I forgot about this episode and listening to it was strangely like nostalgic. Some of the things that we touched on, some of the characters we talked about, I really enjoyed it. Not to listen to myself, but it really like made me think like, oh, wow, like I really do love these movies that I'm talking about. And I really love this character. And even like listening to us talk back about it months later, I was still kind of like, yes, like I still feel passionately about this. So um, that passion is real, folks. We really love these movies when we talk about them. Like it is... It's coming from a place deep inside my heart. I don't know how or why I chose gore and horror movies to be the thing that makes me feel passion. But God, when we talk about this stuff, I'm in it. I'm in it. I know you are too, Troy. Oh, yeah. I enjoy it. I'm, I'm so happy that we are back to record an actual regular episode and have a conversation about a film that I think many, many, many hold in high regard. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where the conversation about this film takes us, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I selected this title only because I've been wanting to talk about it for a multitude of reasons. As I was kind of like, you know, fingering through my list of literally hundreds of movies I want to cover, this stood out. And then as I thought about it, I was thinking, oh, wait a minute. If we're doing this to cap off June, Pride Month, if we can maintain a theme, um, there's there is absolutely something very queer and worth acknowledging 
uh, here within the taking of Deborah Logan. Uh, the character of Sarah, you know, we talked about strong, powerful lesbians in one of our recent Patreon episodes. And um, the character of Sarah is not your typical final girl, per se, um, in in me- nearly any way at all, to be honest. I mean, she's a rough around the edges broad. She's a truck driving lesbian. And she is still so, like, you know, empowering and endearing and you wouldn't expect it like the way they start to present her at the beginning of this movie definitely not what you anticipate her to become by the end of this this take charge will not give up on her mission no matter what's thrown at her like i said empowering figure i think she is phenomenal and i think this is a very strong reason to conclude pride month with the taking of deborah logan well, yeah, this is a this is a definite great example or a great film to include in in Pride Month. However, we're not concluding Pride Month with it because remember we have Poison Ivy coming out next week. We do, but isn't next week technically hold hold the phone? I mean, like it's so it's it's partially July, but does tell me does it not go into June? I'm looking at my calendar, or does it not go into July? Well, for uh, like next halfway Friday into the week, so we're kind of we're transitioning. Yes, we're into transitioning July with smoothly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. By the time we get Poison <laughs> Ivy out, it may be July, but um, yeah. I'm excited for that one too. You know, Drew Barrymore and oh my God, Sarah yeah. Gilbert. Come on, come on now with that long blonde hair. <sighs> A gay man's wet dream. Those two. Uh, you put two strong women together and you basically get a gay man. So, yeah, I think it circles back around and it becomes straight again for us. Um, <laughs> anyways, I'm, I digress. Back to the taking of Deborah Logan. And it's very just queer in a lot of ways. So I think, yeah, it's a good topic to talk about. Um, Troy, I'm curious, what was your first experience when you watched this movie? I think I know a lot of people who've seen this film and it kind of impacted them in a certain way the first time they saw it. Do you remember the first time you viewed this film? I do. I do. It's, I mean, I remember it, you know, it came out, what, in 2014. So, you know, the found footage craze was pretty tired at that point, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you had, think about it, you had the Blair Witch Project in 99, and then the Paranormal Activity films that they, they did those to death. And then you had all kinds of other found footage uh, films that came out that were trying to capitalize on the success of the Blair Witch Project. So there was a whole slew of them. So I remember watching this and thinking, okay, here's another found footage film. What are they going to do with this one? And I remember just being completely blown away by the premise the acting the story some of the visuals are 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 among some of the creepiest i think that you have been caught on film in quite some time so my overall first impression when i watched this film was wow you know i i did not think that a found footage film could actually reignite my interest in that subgenre because I've seen so many of them and, and, and most of them kind of fall flat. They follow a very uh, by the numbers sort of structure. And this one, while it does that as well, I mean, it, it, but it it's telling a, a story that's a little bit deeper than, you know, a, a legend of a witch or a legend of a haunted house, even though paranormal actually runs through this heavily, uh, there are other topics that this film 
deals with primarily Alzheimer's disease and how it affects families and kind of the bond between a a, a family that is dealing with a, a a person that is going through Alzheimer's disease and losing their memory and and not being able to have the connections that they had in the past. It's a very powerful movie in that regard too, that I think anybody that has dealt with or experienced someone they love and, and watched them go through Alzheimer's disease can can relate to. It pleased me because it showed me that found footage can still be powerful and unique and people can still do something with it that is not what we have come to expect. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, well, I, I look back to my first time viewing this and um, I watched it like on a whim, just totally on a whim. I remember it was on Netflix for the longest time and, and I was intrigued by the poster art and I watched it not expecting much of anything and was reluctant because I'll be transparent. One of my um, less preferred subgenres would be found footage, to be honest. I really, I, I don't, it's really got to catch me. It's really got to pull me in. And the thing I think about this movie that immediately pulled me in is that, you know, while they're treating it as a mockumentary, there's a, a severe level of talent here that I don't think you normally get with this subgenre across the board. When it's being filmed like a documentary, it looks like a, a, a very like high-end production. It still looks very elegant and well-handled, but they really use every aspect of being um, a documentary style film to their advantage, even to like the points where they'll be like zooming in on people having conversations or catching audio in, a, in one of their mics. It makes for this, um, the story to really like play off of that and lean into it and play into the secrecy of everything that much more because of it. Um, uh, because there's a lot of people in this film that are keeping secrets. There's a lot of characters who have, dark past that they don't really share that kind of come up and they really just managed to make all of that feel that much more enticing and interesting and intriguing in the moment um, through the means in which they shot this film. I think the found footage aspect, this is a case where it does it so much favor and it makes the movie feel so much more personal and it allows these actors to really, I mean, honestly push their skill sets in ways I have not seen from many found footage documentaries. One of the only ones I could even really compare it to, Troy, would be along the lines of, of the experience I had when I watched Lake Mungo. You know, when you selected that, the, the level of performances we got there, it really, really helped this, uh, you know, this genre, what it is. It helped it kind of transcend beyond the clunkiness of what it can be and made it gel and feel so much more authentic. And I think this movie gives a similar effect. Well, I got to say the two, the two lead characters, um, you know, the, the mother daughter duo, the Deborah Logan character played by Jill Larson and then Sarah played by Anna Ramsey are phenomenal in this film. Absolutely phenomenal. And I'm, I'm totally surprised that you don't hear, I'm going to say, I think Anne Ramsey's great, but I'm, I'm looking specifically at Jill Larson's performance, you know, as an, as an older actress for her to go places physically that she did in this film is uh, just a marvel to watch. Um, and I'm completely surprised that you don't hear more people mention her as kind of one of the standout horror performances of the last decade. 
because it really is a a marvel to watch her to watch her on on screen and watch her body contort and watch her do some of these very physically demanding scenes and come off as being completely terrifying, completely authentic and completely heartbreaking all at the same time. Yeah, I think one of the strongest aspects of her performance, Troy, I mean, yeah, she does some crazy things. Let's let's be clear. She goes there. She is fearless in this role. But the the really tender moments in the documentary in which she is describing her stages of um, her progression with Alzheimer's, there are some acting moments that like, I mean, people have won awards for performances less... <laughs> less effective than what you get the, the the master class performance you get from this woman is it should absolutely be acknowledged amongst fans if you haven't seen this movie for deborah logan alone for the character uh jill lawson lawson is just uh breathtaking in this and you know it's funny i look back i remember this is so so subtle troy but i remember seeing trailers for shutter island and the only thing I remember from any of the publicity for Shutter Island is that woman, sh- like hushing the camera, like looking straight into the camera and be like, "Shh!" And that's fucking Jill Lawson. That's her in that movie. That little little cameo moment. That's all she really was. But they used the fuck out of that promo or of that shot in promo. And now she's playing a character that's like that creep factor, only magnified, like and stretch over the course of an entire movie. And she's she just goes there. It's amazing. So yeah, yeah, definitely the acting across the board though is really rather impressive. I'd say. Yes, it is. And I say, you know, we, we can we can dive right in. Um, we, we we talked about our Patreon. So like I said, if you listen to our top three um, final girl episodes as a little bonus last week and you enjoyed it, please check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast. There's all kinds of bonus stuff already up and we are going to be reviewing Clue for our patreon for next week or for the, to close out june so we're excited about that because you know all the gays love clue and if, if you don't want to do that but you still want to show us some support please 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 go to apple podcasts open it up on your iphone and just find dark night of the podcast and click that little five star rating and submit it if you're so inclined write us a lovely review we would love that it really does help it helps the show quite a bit just a little gesture like that would help us greatly because with the algorithm, Apple podcast tends to populate podcasts that have higher ratings or more reviews. If people are searching for like horror movie podcasts, so check So, so go ahead and do that and we will be grateful, but let's, let's get into the taking of Deborah Logan. Shall we, it, we've mentioned it is a found footage slash mockumentary style film. If you haven't seen it, I would shut this off right now. And go watch it. It's on Prime. It's on Tubi because it is a film that I think you don't want it to be spoiled for you. So check it out and come back. But if you've seen it, here we go. Let's get into it. No spoilers. I'm just I'm, no. Do not look up the ending. Do not do anything. No spoilers. Go watch it now. And I then need come to back. To us. <laughs> one thing. One thing. Yeah. Then come back. Pause it and come back. But one thing we do have to mention also, and I think this is, was also a great choice for Pride Month, only because um, not only because of the lesbian character of Sarah, but also because this is a, a this is directed by an openly gay man, Adam Robitel, um, who has had quite a bit of success in the horror uh, realm with films like The Taking of Deborah Logan and Escape Room. 
I liked Escape Room. I mean, it was well well shot. He did Insidious, The Last Key, and Paranormal Activity, The Ghost Dimension. So he's been quite the busy little horror beaver lately, and he is very open about his sexuality. He actually dated Brian Singer for a minute, who actually produced this film. So there you go. So Pride Month, more connections. But the film opens on October 12th, 2013. And the text on screen tells us that we are watching edited footage from a medical student named Mia who is traveling with her documentary film crew to a remote little Virginia town called Eczema uh, to meet with an Alzheimer's patient named Deborah Logan and her daughter Sarah because uh, Mia wants to do a, her thesis film is the effects of Alzheimer's. So she's trying to find a, a really good candidate for to be the focus of her project, right? Yeah, what a great approach to the to begin with. They they're able to dive right into this. Uh, you start getting story right off the bat. Like I I really appreciate like right away you meet this this film crew. By the way, this poor fucking film crew. The things these people go through <laughs> throughout the course of this movie. It's it's just it's shocking how long they put up with it. Um, well, one of them actually gets smart. One of we got to give the one credit. He he actually gets smart about half yeah, something you never see. He lasted a lot longer than my ass would have. Yeah. But bless his yeah, heart. Yeah, but it jumps right in. Yeah, they pull up to this house, and it's a beautiful house. It's like a southern country estate with these beautiful pillars in the front. Um, and right away, you get giddy, happy, excited, very charismatic Sarah, played by Anne Ramsey. She comes out and she is just all smile. She is so excited that they are there and asked, you know, for, for, to be part of this project with them. She's all gussied up, in her, but her form of gussied up is like her finest. Well, she's gussied up in a, in a flannel shirt and some blue jeans. This is about the extent of this broad getting gussied up. She is your yes. flannel wearing lesbian. <laughs> like, Let's like make to that the, very like clear. The nth degree. Like this woman is. <laughs> a lesbian it's it's actually really funny because she is a lesbian and i'm talking it is so i do like the little touch where the mother uh deborah is always making jabs about the shirt that she's wearing the flannel that she's wearing she's like is that your dad's shirt oh that's ugly why would you (laughs) oh it's i just love those little moments too when they actually get to be mother and daughter and have some interactions yeah Uh, We find out that Sarah's main motivation for allowing this film crew to come and possibly have to intrude on their lives because we find out that the film crew is going to stay at the property for an extended period of time so that they can film. We find out the reason Sarah is doing it is because of her, her her mother's condition and the Alzheimer's disease that they're having financial trouble. And this little endeavor is paying them and mia even says if you guys are the ones we choose the university will also help with the medical expenses as well so this is a big draw this is why sarah is very much all about this happening and then they go in the backyard and we are introduced to the lovely lovely deborah logan played by jill larson um, and her neighbor Harris who just happens to be all, all around all the time. And I, 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 I think the introduction is just so spot on because immediately 
I think that these two characters, how they're presented, Deborah Logan and her her daughter Sarah, are so likable, so warm. Deborah Logan just reminds me of your like your stereotypical grandmotherly character. We all knew a character like this that lived in our neighborhoods when we were a kid and was you know the the older woman that we would you know, that would give the neighbor's kids the good treats at Halloween and was just so warm and welcoming. I, I just love how these two characters are introduced. She seems so sweet. She's she's very humble. Um, she's like, oh, I can't believe you guys want to make a movie about me. However, it it doesn't last long because she does have Alzheimer's disease and there are issues going on in her life beyond that as well. But as Mia's talking to her, Deborah tells her, I don't want to be, I don't want to be made a a spectacle of. Like, I don't want to be exploited. I'm a very private person. And the only reason that this is appealing to me is because it's for education. And Mia's like, well, you know what? I would never do that because my grandfather had the disease. And for some reason, this flips a switch in Deborah and she immediately shuts down and she's like, you know what? Uh, I am having second thoughts about this. I'm too private of a person. I, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. I'm sorry you drove all this way, but I'm not doing this. And she goes in the house and Sarah follows her. Deborah herself is such a um, like a beautifully structured character because all of the things you said earlier are completely true about, you know, she's just so like demure and, and sweet and um, modest. All of those words definitely apply, but there's also like a, a timidness and a sternness almost to her. She's very strict in her ways. She has a certain way she wants things done. Um, she's almost hyper-focused on certain things. And you really do start to see that, you know, her pride is still intact, but it's cracking because she's realizing what's happening. You know, she's very aware of it. And so it it makes for, as you start to learn about her, it makes for an exceptionally like heartbreaking and human analysis of this character. You learn so much about not only the illness, but who this woman is. Yeah. I feel like it really hit her um, when Mia said, Oh, well, my grandfather had the disease too. I, I think that that was kind of a gut punch to her to remind her, you know, oh yeah, I am suffering with this disease. And it, it kind of, you know, turned her off to the whole idea of having someone there to follow her around. And and as she said, maybe make a, a spectacle of her, uh, a very, very genuine moment. You know, as you can tell that she doesn't really want this kind of attention focused on her and she is trying to live a regular life as much as possible and to be reminded, oh, well, we're only here because you have this disease. I think that really hit her in the wrong way. But uh, she goes in the house with her daughter and there is this moment where the camera is watching them from outside the window and we see that Sarah is like basically breaking down, telling her mother, we don't have a choice. Like, do you want to lose the house? They're, they're paying us. We need the money. You got to reconsider. And Deborah is, is consoling her. And because Sarah's like breaking down and crying and Deborah's like, don't cry. It's not that please don't cry. And then she notices that the camera is watching them and kind of gives a glare and goes back to comforting her daughter. And 
the scene cuts. So we're kind of left wondering how it all turned out, but it becomes apparent very quickly with the next scene transition. Their dynamic, I think the thing that is is so captivating to me uh, is even though they're two drastically different people, there is such a love between these two. I mean, it, it definitely feels like it transcends beyond performance. It doesn't feel performance-esque. And in some of these moments, these like because I, I mentioned this earlier about how the documentary style filmmaking really does this film favor because you allow, you get to like overhear very private moments, things that don't necessarily feel performed. They're these kind of you know private, almost like whispered conversations that the mic's able to pick up. Um, moments like this argument, this little argument right here, again, exceptional, exceptional acting. Uh, even the tiniest scenes always have like some kind of an impact to them. This movie doesn't ever feel dry or boring. It always has feeling and emotion to it. Well, I'm going to say two things. I'm going to say, first of all, Adam Robitel directed the hell out of this film. Um, I can say that very confidently, and I think that it's very telling that then he was asked to come on, come aboard and take helm of several of the most successful found footage and paranormal franchises of the time to, to direct their sequels because he directs the hell out of this film. I don't think I've seen a found footage film that has such precise, uh, powerful directing. The second thing I want to say is one thing that when you're watching this film, if you've seen the film, but you haven't watched it for a while and you want to go back and watch it for this episode, there are several moments where things are said. And if you're not listening carefully, you're going to miss them because I I watched this film three times in the last two days to prepare for this because I knew I hadn't seen it for a while and I knew it deals with a really heavy topic. So I wanted to sound like I know what I'm talking about. Right. (laughs) And there were, I mean, even the third time watching it, I heard stuff that I did not hear the first two times that actually is pivotal to the plot. So I'm just saying it. You also want to really pay attention because like Roger said, a lot of the dialogue is very understated because it is being caught through uh, secondary camera mics. So it's not prominent. It's not loud. You really have to pay attention, but some of it is really revealing in terms of plot elements and what happens in the film. Yeah. Yeah. So following this whole sequence in which, you know, obviously Sarah's trying to persuade her mother to give in, uh, Deborah does reluctantly accept. And we cut to the team arriving at the house to begin their study. Um, And we find that they're actually going to be staying there in the house for a period of weeks, uh, kind of just recording everything. Uh, Everything that follows here, it's some very natural moments, this really natural banter, fun, kind of witty banter that really lets like the characters, even even the not more focal characters, kind of like play with their personality and and define exactly who they are. And it, it gives them a lot of character. This whole little sequence, setting everything up, especially um, the character of, I'm blanking on his name. Gavin. Gavin. Like, he pops here, and he really doesn't do a much, do a whole lot, but his character is just awkward, and that translates, and so it makes for these characters just to be very memorable right away, right right off the bat. Well, I like that he goes in and he starts touching everything. Like, he's picking stuff up, and, he, and there's the moment, like, Sarah grabs that statue out of his hand, and he, she's like, oh, no, dude, no. She puts it back down, and then they're in the, the one of the rooms the dining room with the crystal chandelier 
she re- he reaches up and touches the crystals and Deborah Logan's like, oh, it's pretty. Yeah, but we probably shouldn't touch it. <laughs> and Sarah's like, yeah, dude, you, you, you're really a curious one, aren't you? You like to touch everything. I mean, they're just making little f- jabs at him, but in a friendly manner. But then he also, you can tell he's just kind of a high strung, I don't want to say diva, but like one of the first things he asks is, hey, is there a Starbucks in this town? <laughs> And they're like, oh, no, there's nothing like that. So you do get, yeah, there's a lot of playful banter. They go to their rooms. He gets a, um, he gets the short end of the stick when it comes to bedrooms, right? He gets like this one that's barely decorated with a blow up mattress on the floor. And then Mia gets this beautiful room with like a four post bed, a luxurious looking comforter. It really reminded me of that scene in uh, Mutant when the two brothers get to the bed and back <laughs> breakfast and the one gets the shitty room with like a, ma- a mattress on the floor and the other one gets the you know luxurious room. It's kind of funny. And then there is the other third one that really doesn't, I would say the third character, Lewis, we don't get a lot with him at all. Like there are like maybe one or two tiny, tiny moments, but he is very much kept behind the camera the entire film. Yeah. I mean, you hear his voice. He has a lot of commentary. When you hear him say things, he's often the most sensible person in the group. Mm -hmm. He serves a purpose. You just don't see him, but they do manage to incorporate him in a few major moments. And he isn't a majority of the film overall. He's just always kind of omnipresent. So, and I, I really like with this whole moment kind of leading to them all settling into the space. Deborah, like, again, you see very much her quirks and like her very neurotic little tendencies. Like there's a point where a little statue gets gets knocked on, on a, a shelf or a cabinet. Like it gets, the cabinet gets bumped and the figurine gets like knocked like barely out of place and she notices it and she goes over and she has to fix it. Um, and so you really kind of just see all these like weird little quirks at play, which I love. And that moment directly transitions into a, a, a sequence that I really found quite powerful um, in which the topic of whether or not she'd been to Germany due to these German figures, she if she'd ever been to Germany before. And she's like, oh, no, no, but I would love to. And Sarah stops her and says mom we we did go we went not too long ago and um it's pretty clear that deborah does not remember and you see like the moment where her pride just is crushed and she becomes this meek little defeated just like puppy i mean like it's so hard to watch and sad and heartbreaking and you're feeling all these things for this character and you're barely 10 minutes into the movie you know yeah, I, I I feel like at any time that um, Deborah is reminded that she has this disease, it's some of the more heartbreaking moments in the film because she looks so deflated, so defeated, and it really tugs at your heartstrings. Because I don't know, I I personally have never dealt with anybody with Alzheimer's disease, Roger. I don't know if you have. I, I have not. My mom actually passed away from from cancer, so leukemia. So watching that was bad enough. But um, I've never dealt with Alzheimer's, so I can only imagine what it would be like dealing with somebody that has these issues and it just gets progressively worse. I don't know. Do you have experience with anyone with Alzheimer's or? No, I did. I also went through the uh, cancer experience with my mom and it was seven years of it. So by the end of it, she was like, you know, I mean, it was it was rough, but it was not Alzheimer's. Um, And I will say, based off of the documentary footage that we see coming up in this little bit here with Mia kind of narrating. Uh, I'll tell you, this is one of the most terrifying things in the fucking movie. It's just these visuals of people who I'm assuming really have to have Alzheimer's. Like, 
Well, I did. Yeah. Well, she, okay. So Mia presents a short little informational video about Alzheimer's disease and what it is, how it affects the brain, how it slowly eats away at the person's, not only their memory, but it ultimately ends up eating away their, the, 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 the part of their brain that controls breathing and their heart. And yes, there are a couple of images of people that I'm assuming are lying in their hospital beds in the final stages of Alzheimer's disease that are absolutely horrifying. And because I have no experience with knowing anybody or having seen anybody that's experienced Alzheimer's disease, I did not know if this, I mean, is that what they really end up looking like? Because that is I mean, I'm convinced this has to be real, real footage of real people with Alzheimer's. I can't imagine it being anything else. It's terrifying. I guess I, I. I guess I just never knew that it affected you physically like that. Okay. I mean, it's then it it really is a horrible disease. And what she even, she even calls it an insidious disease, uh, which I can completely understand why you would say that. I mean, it sounds awful. There is this interview then after her little instructional or after her little informational video about Alzheimer's, they do cut to an interview about there. They have, Deborah sitting there next to Sarah. And I like when the scene um, starts, Deborah's like, you need to take off that green jacket. That looks too much like a military jacket. She's always picking on her about what she's wearing. <laughs> but it is like the, the, the questions they are asking is they're asking Sarah when she got the first clue that her mother may have Alzheimer's. So she starts telling a story about basically Deborah Logan, Deborah one night using the stove and forgetting that it was on and catching the entire kitchen on fire. And of course, Deborah gets very combative about, well, I, well, any, that could happen. At least it wasn't your grandmother. Remember your grandmother used to do this thing. And, and Sarah's like, no, I'm just saying that was my first clue. And again, it's one of those moments where Deborah Logan gets very defeated. Mm-hmm. Well, and the chemistry between these two women, it's so real. It feels so like well-developed because like Deborah's constantly at trying to feminize the very butch Sarah and Sarah's super resistant against it, first of all. But Sarah's this really abrupt and straightforward personality. And Deborah is fragile and she has like a, an ego that's very easily bruised and she's proud. And so um, while Sarah very much cares about the experience that she's going through with her mother and is trying her damnedest to, um, to be there for her, they don't necessarily like get along per se. And I think that's probably like one of the, the best written aspects of the whole film is just the, the slight tension between the two of them. They're always kind of butting heads, but lovingly, they care so much about each other, but they just operate very differently. Well, yeah. And there's also this underlying, you know, element that we gather that Sarah doesn't really want to be there, but she knows as, as a daughter that it is her kind of obligation and duty uh, because it is revealed later on in the film that she has a girlfriend and that she lives in Richmond, Virginia, and not this little town with her mother. And that she's only there because of this documentary film crew and what they and what their project is. So after the interview, we get another little like uh, montage of footage from Mia's documentary that just shows uh, Deborah going through her daily life and Mia's talking about the struggles that Alzheimer's patients face on a daily basis, that nothing, nothing can be easy for them. So we get scenes of like Deborah going into a shower or a flower shop and buying some flowers and, and paying and, you know, the, the cashier having to tell her, oh, well, you need, you need actual bills. You only gave me the change or like her making this pineapple cake 
that I guess it's insinuated that wasn't fully cooked because she's given it to Gavin and making him eat it. And he's pretending that he likes it, <laughs> but you can tell that it's not good. But then we kind of, we learn our, one of the most important elements of the film is revealed. So when Sarah was two, her father died and her mother didn't have a choice to Deborah had to figure out something to do in order to make a living and be able to take care of her daughter. So what she did was she started the town's only switchboard answering service. And it actually became a massive success that, and it, basically everyone in the town then had to use uh, Deborah's switchboard service as their main messaging service, right? So it became very successful. And she very um, happily recalls the fact that she got to become close with the doctors in the town, the bankers in the town, the town elites. They, they got, she got to go to parties with them and she got to mingle with them. And it was just a very wonderful time in her life. And everyone at the time told her that it was one of the stupidest things she could do was to start this, to invest in the switchboard and start this business. Yeah. Um, I, I think that this is such a unique, uh, little plot point. I can't think of any film that's used anything kind of similar to this. Um, uh, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't, this whole movie doesn't feel like it's really like another film. And I appreciate that very much. There's all these weird little original um, little, little bits and pieces to the plot that just make it feel very fresh. I got to say that's that store sequence with that sweet Southern bell uh, that g- give that woman featured day player of the year, <laughs> like that woman. What a dumpling! I mean, she had to really own that store because she was just so naturally sweet. She's like, dear, you got to hand me the bills now. You got the correct change. I just need the bills. <laughs> she is so sweet. <laughs> uh, we also meet Doctor Nazir, who is who is Deborah's doctor regarding her Alzheimer's. Uh, she's appropriately pleasant and optimistic over the course of the film. And we are informed uh, that uh, that uh, she's, you know, really focused on doing the very best she can to tackle Deborah's uh, illness head on. And I do appreciate that this doctor over the course of the film, like, shit gets bad and she is still trying so hard to be like we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna face this head on and it's just you and me and we're gonna do it and like (laughs) i'm like girl eventually you just gotta say you know what your mom is uh either infected by by like a a presence or she's gonna be dead within days because this woman's health is deteriorating in a way i mean it's it happens so Yeah. And, you know, bless her heart because, yeah, she's all she's trying to remain optimistic, but it is as things get worse and worse. You were like, come on, lady. I mean, be sensible. Exactly. (laughs) So after this, there is that scene of Lewis. He's on the porch just filming random shit and he's filming Deborah over there digging in her little garden. And as he zooms in, uh, she is picks up this large snake out of her garden and is holding it lovingly. And all of a sudden Mia comes in and interrupts him. It's like, Lewis, what are you doing? You're supposed to be editing the footage. And he quickly turns back around and Deborah is like right there, right in front of him. Like in a split second, she made it from the middle of the yard to him. And she's very like stern yet still has that level of, of, you know, Southern pleasantness where she's like, Oh, you hungry? It's lunchtime. Let's go get lunch. 
Yeah, it's the first thing that feels really um, off or unsettling. Odd. Awkward. Yeah. Yeah, and it's definitely, like, it's edited in a way where she, like, shows up so abruptly. How did she move that fast? It doesn't really make sense. It's the first of what will be many very uncomfortable and often terrifying moments. There's a lot to come. So they go in, they have lunch, and after lunch, Lewis is installing cameras throughout the house to make their filming, I guess, you know, the fact that they are making this documentary and they want to catch as much footage as possible. They're putting cameras around the house. And of course, we have to keep in mind, it is a found footage film, so you have to have explanations for why certain things are being filmed, right? I mean, that's the that's the um, one of the main elements of a found footage film and making sure that you're doing it correctly is the viewer is always going to ask, Oh, well, why is that being filmed or why, how is that footage? So they do show these filmmakers going around and putting these cameras in different play areas of the house so that the house is covered. And there is this creepy moment. First of the first moment where I find like Deborah Logan's character a little bit creepy because he is on a ladder installing the, the camera and he doesn't see her behind him, but we do because the camera's facing the hallway and she just slowly walks into frame and looks up at the camera and just stares at it kind of maniacally for a second. And then slowly walks away. I gotta say, when you see him placing those cameras all about the house, like you're like, you realize just how much it's expanded upon the, the potential here when you realize like, Oh, there's fucking cameras everywhere. They're not just sitting down and like recording this woman like day after day, like with like a mounted cam. No, there are cameras everywhere. High tech cameras. They can move around. You hear them like going as they like move about. Uh, And it just really like sets it up for you as the viewer to be like, Oh shit. I know all of this is going to come into play. <laughs> like, I know I'm going to be scared in this camera. I know I'm going to be scared in that camera where she's watching ominously from the door that you're talking about. Like, it just makes you feel like, oh, fuck, there's so much potential here to get my the shit scared out of me. Well, and the, this, this very next scene is the first kind of major uh, clue that something is not right or that she is maybe a little bit further along in the disease than what we've been led to believe or what the filmmaker has been led to believe, right? Because Mia and Sarah are having this very pleasant conversation when all of a sudden you hear guttural, like angry screaming coming from the kitchen and they get up and they run in there and Deborah has pulled a knife on Gavin, on Gavin and she is accusing him of stealing her garden spade. And he is, my God, his reaction is so, I mean, I, I think it's believable, but it's just something you'd never see in a horror movie, right? You usually see these characters just be like, oh yeah, I get out of, this dude is like, he jumps on the counter. He's like standing on the counter trying to get away from her. He jumps across the counter through the, uh, through the opening between the, the, the breakfast nook and the dining room. This dude is like, oh, fuck this. Like, get the fuck away from me. He is getting away. He is not happy and not wanting anything to do with this crazy woman. And she is just freaking the fuck out. 
Well, Troy, I think if anything, he knows that he can't touch this woman. Like, you know, she has Alzheimer's. It's not like he can push her. <laughs> like, she'll go down like, like, a, like, a, like a, she's built out of straw. Like, she's she, like. Well, she has a, she's has a knife on her. I understand, I but he, like, he, she's a patient. She's like a, a test patient with Alzheimer's for a documentary he's working on. He, like, I love the reaction here. Um, there is a little moment lead, leading into this that I want to touch on just really briefly. They have this deep conversation where they all kind of get drunk and talk to each other for a little bit. And I want to touch on this moment because I think it's a really interesting bit about Sarah. Um, Sarah has this like seemingly comfortable acceptance of her being an alcoholic that throughout the entire film, when the topic of alcohol comes up, like she plays it off like such a joke. And it's something that she's obviously struggling with, but she's like, she accepts it. It's such a strange approach to it. And it really gives her like a, almost like an anti-hero kind of vibe in a way, you know, like she's so not the norm of what you would expect. I, I, I will say I, I liked the fact that they didn't make it like, they didn't like demonize it. A, a lot of films I think would, and I'm not saying, you know, alcoholism or, is good, whatever, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they took the approach that they did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, be- same. Because it, it makes it, I mean, everything else in the film is just so, you know, we're dealing with Alzheimer's. We're dealing with what is just some crazy uh, off the wall behavior from this person. And, and we as the audience aren't really privy yet to what's going on. So it's already like, oh my God, what is this? What's the deal here? I would just like the fact that they kept her character, even though, yes, she's an alcoholic, but guess what? She's a very functioning alcoholic. It's There's no moments where she's like so, sh- so shit-faced drunk that she can't function. She's always very alert. And I mean, again, I'm not advocating alcoholism, but I'm saying the film, I think, handled it in the right way and just made the character a little bit more, I think, believable and unique because you're right. It's not something you see in other films well and what she's going through troy she's she's coping and it's so it's sympathetic because you could tell she's distraught over all of the stress she's dealing well there's even the moment where mia says as she's narrating she's like and sarah has found her own coping mechanism and it cuts to her pouring a glass of vodka um and she's very i mean she had you're you're right. She's very comfortable with admitting it, and in fact, she makes several jokes throughout the film of the fact that she's gonna, you know, because I, there is a conversation that takes place where Mia or one of the guys is asking her if she's afraid that, you know, because Alzheimer's is Alzheimer's disease is hereditary, right? And she, if she's afraid of possibly her getting it at some point in her life, and Sarah jokingly, I mean, she says blatantly, she's like, "Oh no, I'll be dead of liver psoriasis before that." I mean, she's very. I mean, it's it's just a very unique and interesting take on the character, and it doesn't really, like I said, it doesn't affect her. Uh, there's no moments of her being like belligerent or anything like that. It's it is what it is. It's how she copes. Yeah, and this moment that was between them, this little this little moment of levity, it I think was very needed because right after that, it does transition right into the moment you mentioned about this whole attack and the attack that takes place in the kitchen. And, and it's pretty like off the wall, unhinged, like already Deborah Logan is like brandishing knives and, and threatening to kill somebody over her spade. Like it flips like a switch. Well, she throws herself on the floor, you know, and Gavin, Gavin goes up. He's like, he gets, he's like, fuck this. I'm, and Sarah's like, oh, I'm so sorry. You okay. And he's like, no, I'm not fucking okay. I mean, he's not mincing words. He goes upstairs. They, they kind of all disperse for a moment. 
Sarah goes back downstairs after trying to, you know, calm down Gavin. And she finds that Deborah is just standing, staring outside this window, which becomes a very prominent image in the film is Deborah's always staring out this one window at the front of the house. You know, Sarah goes up, turns like, mom, mom, what you see out there? All of a sudden, Deborah turns around and literally rips a piece of like grabs her neck and just rips a piece of skin out of her neck. And it's just disgusting. It made me cringe so bad. Ripping skin is Deborah Logan's like a uh, self-mutilation of choice. Uh, she rips her own skin multiple times over the course of this film. Never is it not disgusting and horrifying to watch. But this moment, yeah, it really, it, it you forget how violent it is until you watch it and you're like, oh my God, it makes you cringe. Like it literally made me kind of like pull back in my chair and go, Oh my God. Like I responded, like physically responded to this moment. And I've seen this movie so many times. So I just think that speaks as a testament to, you know, not only the direction, but also the effects, some of the effects and the, the makeup effects in this film, especially as she, she starts to progress and become more ill and, and inflict wounds upon herself in different ways. It's always effective. It's always uh, cringy to see it happen. So I really do want to point out that the, the the practical effects in this film and the makeup effects in this film when they do happen are uh, rather impressive. Yeah. So they take, obviously they take uh, Deborah to the hospital and the doctor is telling Sarah that the, the, the disease has spread now. It's, it's, it's to the middle of her brain. It's spreading rapidly. And, and Sarah's like, I don't understand. You said that she probably has at least three years left. And, Doctor's like, no, this is like super aggressive, Sarah. And so Deb, you know, after being in a little split in the hospital, getting her her throat bandaged up, she gets to go home. When they get there, Harris, who just kind of comes around a bitch, I think. Like he comes around and he tells Sarah that, yeah, Sarah mentions like putting her in a home, like should we put her in a home and, and Harris starts freaking. I was like, no, what do you mean a home? You're just going to put her in a bed where she just lays there all day and under a fluorescent light and withers away. This is her home. She needs to stay here. She loves her, which I get, but dude, kind of mind your business. Stay in your lane, right? I mean, this is a family issue. He's, he's far more, he's far more comfortable demanding Sarah do this, this, and this. than I think is like, you're not even part of the family, dude. Shut up. This is her daughter. But I think it's also that small town mentality, Troy. Like, I think, you know, this has been her neighbor, obviously, since Sarah was a child. Um, it's It sounds pretty clear that they have a very close relationship, almost in a way, almost like a father figure to Sarah. No, I get it. I get her. it. But I always I have an issue with people that are are not part of a family. When a family is dealing with something as horrific as, as this, you know, or they are facing something that is. Uh, let's face it, it's going to be her death. Like I have a problem with people that aren't like family members like that strongly giving her advice or making demands because he doesn't even like necessarily suggest things to her. Like there is a point where he tells her you do this or I will do it. And I'm like, no dude, you're not. No, sorry. You're overstepping your boundaries. I would tell him to get fucked. There's one little moment I want to highlight real quick. It's the moment when they're driving back. Um, and, uh, from the hospital and, uh, Deborah has a moment where she apologizes for her attack 
and 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 she, you could tell she's so like taken aback by it. And she's like, I just want you to know that I apologize for what I did to you. I apparently did to you. Like, you know, like, and it's such like a moment, but, um, it's so genuine and you could tell it is very hard for her to acknowledge that she had this moment happen that she really apparently doesn't seem to even remember. Um, so it is sad to see how fast this is progressing for her. Yeah. Uh, once they get her home, there is a moment where she's sitting on her bed and Lewis is filming her without really her knowing. And she's staring into the mirror, just rambling to herself, saying just things like, oh, I can't do this. What am I doing? And really random stuff, except there is a moment where she sees him in the mirror and stops and gives him a glare and then he backs out. Yeah, it's one of those moments again where it's just like, like this woman and her stares, you know that she is, you know, when she's not happy or when there is this you know, kind of a, a sinister vibe running through her because this woman's glares are Oscar worthy on their own, you know? Absolutely. That moment when she looks in the mirror and, and the eye connects with the camera and she starts to lean over a little bit is so fucking creepy and like there's really nothing to it other than just this old woman in a mirror and like it's just her it's her presence it's it's when she when she goes to this darker place the way she um holds herself and the way her face kind of contorts it's it really is very very effective Uh, now there is a scene with sarah on the phone with her girlfriend and it's very blatant she's she even gets off the phone and she tells um she tells Mia and the, and the camera crew, she's like, I can't even tell her, my girlfriend the truth. Like I'm, I have, I don't even have the balls to tell her uh, what's going on. Um, so they, they sit on the porch together as a group and they have a drink and Sarah tells the story of her mother, Deborah sending her to a boarding school when she was 10 years old because she caught her kissing um, one of the little neighbor girls, Annie in the barn. Yeah, it's it's a really it's kind of a sad story. It is a sad story, and you can tell that she's completely she's not really over it either because she's like, I was only ten, you know, and we had we had no idea what we were doing. They hear some loud pounding noises coming from inside, so they rush inside to go check. Sarah runs upstairs, as she's upstairs, Gavin's down there with the camera, and we see. Another really creepy effective shot in the in the doorway. We see Deborah just walk by real quickly in her little white nightgown, just go whoop, right in front. Uh-huh. And so he goes after her, and he finds her staring out this window again. And he's like, "Sarah, come down here. She's down here." So Sarah goes there and approaches her mother, and he, she's like, "Oh, you see the intruder again?" And she's like, "Sarah's like she's she's been having these." visions of of she thinks someone's out in the yard trying to get into the house and then then there's a, a scene of her of poor deborah starting to nail the window shut she, she's like going to town on that fucking window too like. oh she, i know it's hilarious. and sarah's like oh mom's you're nailing the window shut again okay here we go and she, sarah's like i've just learned not even to argue with her just let her do it later that night we see that there is a camera in Deborah's bedroom that's watching her and as she's sleeping. And all of a sudden, she bolts out of bed, gets up, and leaves the house. Sarah gets up and, and realizes her mother's not in bed. So they go looking for her. 
The window now has been ripped open from the nails. It's been ripped open and outside the window is her little nightgown. So Sarah and the group rush into the forest and they find her in the middle of the forest, in the middle of the night, just going ballistic with her little garden spade, stabbing the ground and just like grunting and screaming and doing all this growling shit. And it is pretty crazy. Man, uh, this whole sequence, anytime it goes to like the, like the camera angle in the bedroom or the hallway, it's like, never is it not terrifying, even when things aren't happening. But this whole moment of her, like she wakes up, it cuts to a different camera, it cuts back and all of a sudden she's gone. Like sometimes she like moves in uh, ways that don't make sense, almost as though she's like teleporting. It's so strange. Uh, and really effective, to be honest. And all of a sudden, she's in the hallway, and she, like, disrobes. Like, one thing that we need to acknowledge is she's naked. Um, and, like, there's a few moments here in the film where she actually does get stripped down nude. And I'm pretty sure, like, we're seeing this this actual actress's body naked at, like, 65, 70. And it, like, it just adds to, the like, the scare factor even more that she would go there as well. But um, yeah, it's already weird, crazy shit is happening. And it's like night after night, night after night. Yeah, I mean, she's hacking the ground with this garden trowel to the point where her hands are completely cut up and bloody. And Mia takes her inside and is washing her hands in the sink and they're just covered in blood. And all Deborah can say is, you know, Sarah never gets, Sarah never cleans her nails. And then she looks at the camera real, like, with this really disturbing look. Ooh, this scene makes my skin crawl because she's just glaring at Mia. She's giving her just this hateful stare as she scrubs the dirt from her hands. And you see her nails kind of all chipped up and everything. Um, you know, it's like you look at this this bloody, pulpy hand and you know it just has to be so fucking painful. But she's just glaring at Mia with hate in her eyes. Gavin has gone back to review the footage and he calls it, he calls Mia down to look at it. And there is this image that he's captured of Deborah standing in front of the stove. And literally I, she is one second. She's standing in front of the stove. The other second, she is actually standing on top of it. And they notice that there is no time jump at all, that it's just all very fluid. Because even Mia's like, oh, she must have got a chair and climbed up there. And they're like, no, do you see a fucking chair? And there's no chair. They can't figure out how it is. And we see it a couple times. She's standing there, and all of a sudden, within a second, she's standing on top of the stove with her little garden trowel. And, I mean, they show it to Sarah, and she's like, there, there has to be a glitch, right? And they're like, we don't know. This is completely weird. Poor Sarah's fucking going through it, man. I, I feel for her character. She is struggling. And you just see it in her face at all times. There's a discussion at the top of the stairs where Deborah refers to Sarah's lady friend in Richmond. And it's very much kind of meant in like you could tell in kind of like a passive aggressive way. Um, and you can see that like Deborah in her own way trying to be accepting, but clearly like not comfortable with the lesbian thing. Um, it's just, it's just, Sarah goes in and she scolds Deb. She's like, mother, you, what were you doing? You stood on the stove. Look at yourself. You're just making, you're just a menace to yourself. And Deborah's like, why don't you just go back to Richmond? Anyways, I know you miss your lady friend. I'll be fine here. And there is this, also this moment where 
outside, Sarah is with uh, Harris again, and he is like, here, I'll clean this up. But hey, why don't you uh, take a break on the filming for a while? Because I think she needs to be left alone for for a little while. So why don't you guys, why don't you tell him to take a why don't you take a break and tell him to quit filming her for a while? Anyway, Sarah's like, oh, whatever. I don't know. We need the money. Mind your own business. Now they they sit her down in front of the camera and they show her the video of her digging frantically in the dirt. And she is not happy. She is like, this is obscene. This is vulgar. Why would why didn't you stop me? And they're like, we tried to stop you. You were in a deep sleeping state. We couldn't, we couldn't get you to stop. And she just becomes very visibly upset. And there's just like this quiet moment where she's looking down and she's you know, obviously kind of processing what this whole scenario was the night before that she doesn't remember when all of a sudden she just sits up and leaps out of her chair at the camera and has another one of these like horrific outbreaks where she's screaming, flailing, throwing herself at people, trying to hit people. It's pretty aggressive and it's kind of a, one of those little effective jump scares you don't you don't see that coming that she's gonna leap at the camera like that yeah yeah like the moment the sequence begins you know like something's gonna be fucking crazy you just know it she like sits down the camera and she's smiling she's wearing this like sensible white top she looks all pleasant she has her makeup and hair done um and you just you know like there's no way that this, this is gonna end well um, and it certainly doesn't. Like, she keeps fucking attacking this goddamn camera crew. These guys are, they're putting up with some nonsense. Some nonsense. Uh, but, but it is a rather effective jump scare in the sense that she just attacks out of nowhere. Uh, Gavin is really getting brutalized, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, they take her to the hospital the next day, and there is this very painful-looking scene of her getting a spinal tap. Ugh, and she is just screaming in pain and they're just telling her oh don't don't quit moving don't move don't move and that shows the needle going into her spine and then then them capturing the spinal fluid in a little vial as she's screaming made me cringe they're running a number they run a number of tests on her and they can't find any answers and in fact they say that these are these what's happening to her is actually creating more questions than answers. And there's this moment where they disrobe her and her whole back is covered with like scaly red scabs. It looks, it looks horrific. Oh my God. This goddamn rash on her back. It's so aggressive. And these doctors clearly have like no idea whatsoever. Uh, Like the one guy's like, has she been around any rare metals? Like, (laughs) You know, like, and like, they're like uh, metals, uh, like my mother's back is like physically apparently melting off of her. And these doctors are just fucking stumped, which I do kind of find if there's anything somewhat comedic about this movie, it's like every time it cuts to the doctors, they just have no fucking idea. And they sound like idiots every time. Yeah, there's a moment. There's another moment here in a couple scenes later where something really crazy happens. And the one doctor is like, Oh, well she just likes to garden. Right. That explains it (laughs) during, but yeah. And then like, there's this moment because you know, her main doctor is trying to get it, you know, knowing that this is this Alzheimer's is, is progressing so rapidly. So she has her in a little room and she's asking her to make the letter T with the white blocks and poor Deborah is not having it at all. She's like, no, I can't. And the doctor's like, just try. And Deborah's like, there, I tried. I don't want to. And, in the, and then she starts scratching her arm. 
to the point where she gets really aggressive with the scratching and rips her skin again off of her arm. It is so disgusting. Like Dr. Nazir is like, Deborah, Deborah. Like she's like, and like Deborah like starts turning away as though she doesn't like want to stop doing it. And she's like looking down at the wound with like a, like a look of just shock on her face. It's, it's another really uh, unsettling moment. This does have like this kind of like moment where they're showing some montage footage and there's one specific shot that stands out and I'm sure you'll know the one I'm talking about. It's the piano shot where like this whole moment concludes and she's just sitting there at the piano playing the piano and she turns her face and looks over at the camera and smiles and she looks like a fucking like a skeleton from like one of those old like 1500s oil paintings or like even earlier like 1400s oil paintings where they had like skeletons like like attacking people you know the ones i'm talking about like they look like really very like you know they're very it's like during like the black plague it looks like a black plague image it's just really like as a shot as a as a standalone shot in general it's absolutely terrifying yeah and the way she's grinning is yeah not it's very unpleasant. So the crew, the film crew has been away from the house and, but they come back and as they pull up, they see that, that there's a truck there and they they go inside and right away you hear screaming and a, a lot of ruckus. So they go into the bed, the, one of the rooms and they see that Sarah and Harris are trying to, they have Deborah on the floor and she's flailing and screaming again. There, she's been eating plants so they're trying to pull the plants out of her mouth, and she is just having a fit about it. I love that they arrive and they walk in, and already shit is happening. Like it's like there's no peace for anybody in this film. This woman is constantly having outbursts. She really should be in like a, a padded room at this point or something for her own good. But uh, it's nonstop. Yeah, I actually think she was trying to eat one of those little German statues. Isn't that what she was trying to eat? Something like I that. I thought it was plants. It, who knows? She's trying to eat everything. I mean, there's a yeah. Well, the, the one of the final shots of the movie is yes, her Ooh. trying to eat something very specific. Yes, um, <laughs> Gavin being mischievous, as we've learned, Gavin likes to stir the pot. Gavin decides to record himself taking his cross and placing it on the window that Deborah finds herself so drawn to to see if there's something more to this because he he believes that there is definitely something uh, supernatural going on. So he's going to like, I don't know, tempt fate. Uh, so he takes the camera and he like films himself going downstairs. Uh, and this is a moment that I wouldn't say this is necessarily my favorite moment in the film because it's so like, <laughs> it's a little far-fetched for me, but it's still kind of effective. So he finds her paint easel because she's an artist. He starts going through it and it's all these portraits of the exact same window. But you see, like, this dark figure, like, illustrated. Like, it's like going through a flip book. <laughs> like, you just see it, like, coming closer and closer and closer until it finally reaches the window. And then there's images on the floor in which the demon is actually, like, coming through the window. It's effective. It's it's fun. It, it see, I feel like there's, in every movie like this, there's always, like, some, somebody's interpreting something through art. Either a child's drawing pictures, images of a boogeyman, or, you know, there's, uh, uh, we, we saw it, <laughs> we saw it in, um, oh God, what's the Dark Skies. Movie? Dark Skies with the goddamn illustrations there too. Like, if you can't find a good way to tell a story, you might as well have there be a segue in which they just illustrate it. Um, so they kind of use this little moment here to imply that this, 
something has been coming for Deborah, and she's been seeing it for a while, and she's been interpreting it through her paintings. And this does all build up to a really fun kind of startle moment at the window, where he turns around and she's there, and the window's open all of a sudden. She's like, "You're letting my heat out." In uh- <laughs> yeah, this very deep voice, it's yeah, it's creepy. Yeah, and the window just because the window was nailed shut when, and that's when when he hung his crucifix on it, it's shut. And then he turns to her, and she's he turns and she's standing right there, and she's like, "Yeah, you, you're letting my air out." And then the window's open, and he he's freaked out. I mean, all this shit is culminating, and he is freaked out. And he goes to my Mia, and he's like, "Listen, if you want me to stay, you are doubling my rate because this is some bullshit. This is not what I signed up for." <laughs> And I mean, and then it just keeps getting, I mean, like there's no letting up, like we don't get a moment of peace. There's not a night of peace. There's not a night where nothing happens because that same night when they're in bed, everyone's woken up to this loud, loud ringing telephone ringing just everywhere. Just ring, 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 going ballistic. And what they realize is that it is the switchboard from the attic and they go up to this attic they see Deborah sitting naked at the switchboard and she is repeatedly trying to plug the, one of the switches into the same little hole. And they're like, mom, what are you doing? She's naked, butt ass naked. And Sarah gets closer to her and is like, mom, what are you doing? And then all of a sudden she starts growling and speaking in what, what comes to be French she starts maniacally just jabbing the switch into the same little splot over and over again until the switchboard literally sparks and explodes and they have to get poor Deborah. They take her downstairs and the doctor shows up and there's this really, uh, I think it's a very gut wrenching moment where Deborah's on her bed, just writhing and crying and in pain. And Sarah's there embracing her and, and petting her head. And it's like, yeah, mom, I know, I know it's very, I don't know. It got to me and it just shows the bond that these two have, or at least the bond at the moment that Sarah has with her mother and wants to, you know, doesn't want her mother to be suffering like she is. I do want to point out that this is the specific sequence where she disrobes in the camera because we see that camera footage happen a couple of times. So this is the moment because you're right. She is nude in the sequence. And as it's building up to the moment in which they find her, I do also have to say that one thing this movie does really well, and it doesn't over do it is it allows there to be moments of like uh elevated chaos because of the the style in which they're filming it there's a lot of panic and they really play up the like the audio and just the overall like like the jitteriness of the, the jittery camera work and everything we've seen it before but this movie really uses it in its favor for these moments in which you know you're kind of building suspense and the audio at play here with the sound of the the buzzer coming through the the um through all the floors and everything, it's really loud and it's it's so shrill and um it, it it's all really just it comes together really nicely in these moments these these suspenseful build up sequences we have this here we have it a few other times towards the end um they do a really good job with building up to these big moments like the moment where she does get electrocuted there's so much suspense building up to that moment and it's always a really satisfying uh, payoff. When every time whatever happens, it's never lame. They always do something that makes me feel like, oh, fuck, like that was really worth the suspense, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the, the suspense. Like, I, what I do like about this film, and I think one of the one of the reasons why it probably gets a lot of 
praise among horror fans is that once the action and the horror starts, it is literally nonstop. Uh, as we're mentioning, I mean, it's one scene after another of something more progressively disturbing, disturbing happening. And it just, it's, it never lets up. You don't get a moment to breathe. Gavin has the next day he's pulled the audio from the attic scene and he isolated it and basically put it through a translator and realizes that it is French. And she is saying in this French, she's basically saying in this demonic tone that, you know, she wants to, she wants their blood to fill the river and you need to be my fifth. And it's just all this stuff that doesn't make much sense. And we hear it over and over and they even let Sarah, they even let Sarah listen to it. And she's like, that's, that's, I can't, that can't believe that can't be my mom. Shut it off. Harris is overheard here threatening Sarah. They're having a private conversation. It's another moment where they're able to use the documentary style situation in their favor greatly, I think, because you hear this private conversation uh, between Harris and Sarah, where he is overheard threatening her to remove the crew or else he will. And it's this brief little moment, but it's very tense. And you can tell there's a lot of hostility between the two of them right now. Yeah. And this is kind of the moment I was talking about where he's like, yeah, you got it. You better tell them to leave or I'll do it. And, you know, she's a little taken aback by it, you know, and she's like, no, they're helping and they're going to they're going to stay. They realize that the slot that she was pushing the um, switchboard into the switch into over and over again was was slot 337. And there is a scene where the doctor tells Sarah that you need to that has to be significant for her for some reason. Like there has to be a reason why she is so fixated on that particular slot. And the doctor tells her, please, if you can find it out and and maybe remind her of it, it may help calm her down or may help settle her down. So the group, they start digging through all of Deborah's old materials and stuff, and they find her old record books from her switchboard company. And they start to look through the books and they, they get to the point where she has it all mapped out, like which switch went to who. However, in all of the books, 337 has been erased. It's not there. She's erased it, tore it out, deleted it, so you can't see who that belonged to. But Lewis, in all of his intelligent thinking, sees that there are impressions on the next page. So he runs in and gets some charcoal from Deborah's studio and does the old charcoal rubbing trick where you put, you know, you take the piece of charcoal and you rub it over the um, the paper to see what the impressions said. And it says 337 and then a name, which was DeJardine. And Sarah right away knows who this was. She's like, oh my God, he was the former pediatrician in this town. And he was actually accused of killing four young girls. She's like, I can't believe you guys have not heard of this. There is actually a documentary about it. So we get witnessed, we get to witness some of the documentary. I have to say this is a very well handled documentary clip. Uh, it's set appropriately back in like the 70s or early 80s, and it's ex- very convincing. It looks very much of the era, um, and it discusses the murders of the four area girls, and you find out that each body was found uh, with snake venom in the veins and snake-shaped carving in the skin. It's You do see photos of the actual like girls like you know after the sacrifices and what have you and it's it's very snuffy and uncomfortable absolutely it's just a very well handled 
a documentary piece. And you do have a doctor come up who discusses uh, that the murders replicated an old Mayan ritual involving virgins on their menstrual cycle um, and being the area pediatrician that does make for that to be very creepy. Yeah. So this, so supposedly this pediatrician tried to, he killed four young girls while they had just started their first period, carved several like symbols into their forehead. And the whole ritual was so that he could have eternal life. And we find out the reason why they would, they thought it was him. And the reason why they think he did this particular ritual is because he had just found out he, um, had Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah. And he disappeared from the town and was never seen or heard from again. They, they, they never found his body. They never found out what happened to him. They assume that he must've just escaped and started a new life after killing these girls. If he was the one that did it. So there is this scene now where Sarah confronts Deborah about whether or not she knew the Jardine. And Deborah is at the table and she's like, well, the name kind of sounds familiar. And Sarah's like, well, yeah, I know mom, it's been 30 years and he disappeared, but you have to know who it was. And Deborah says, oh, he's not missing. He's dead. (laughs) Sarah's like, well, how do you know that? Her whole body shifts and changes in this moment. Yeah. And Sarah's like, well, how do you know that? And all of a sudden she growls, she goes, murder. And then she suddenly gets up, looks like she's going to be sick. She runs into the bathroom to throw up and we hear Sarah going after her and we hear her gagging and shit and Mia and the crew get up to follow and they go into the bathroom and Sarah's freaking out. She's like, we have to call the hospital. We have to call the hospital. And they go into the bathroom and they see Deborah laying on the floor and she has literally vomited dirt and earthworm, live earthworms. We're not just saying a few. She just threw up what I would say is an entire... I don't know, like pitcher of dirt, of soil, uh, just completely projectile vomited that all over this carpet. And there's like a shit ton of it. And there's like worms moving around in it. It's like, how the fuck? Like, how are you going to explain this moment? Well, one of the doctors attempts to describe what they think happened. Why the doctors, yeah, the doctor says, oh, well, your mom gardens, doesn't she? It could be possible that she swallowed <laughs> And Sarah's like, dude, it was a whole fucking pile of earthworms. Did you see the volume of soil that came out of this woman? How much dirt was she hoarding inside of herself? <laughs> like- well, then he then he suggests, like, this is some solution. Like, this is some explanation. He suggests that maybe she has split personality disorder. I'm like, what does that have to do with eating a batch of, or throwing up a glob of earthworms? At the same time, there is this quick little scene that we see Harris has made it to the hospital and he rushes into her room to try to see her before the orderly stop him from doing it. And Mia notices this. So when they get back to the house, Mia actually suggests a hypothesis that she has. She says maybe Harris is actually trying to protect himself. Maybe he killed the Jardine. And had your mother help him cover it up. And she's been suppressing that memory until now. And this illness is just bringing it out in her. And as they're having this very like, you know, logical talk about what, 
what could be going on because Harris, you know, has been kind of acting weird throughout the film. You know, he's, he's a little bit more, like I said, I think he, he's a little bit more, uh, protective and trying to put his foot where it doesn't belong than I would anticipate a lot of people would. So it is kind of gives him a air of suspicion. Well, all of a sudden gunshots are heard outside and they look and this Harris dude is out there literally with a shotgun blowing the window, <laughs> shooting the van, the, the camera crew's van. So all your suspicions about Harris being a fucking weirdo, I think are just now even heightened more. This sequence is incredibly tense. Um, they're talking and all of a sudden out of nowhere, you just hear this fucking gunshot just erupt outside and they immediately get up and run to the windows and fuckers just shooting the car. But like they're all running around like, you know, trying to hide behind walls. Windows are getting blown in like one of the actual house windows gets shot in. Um, and it's it's actually quite scary. And then you realize what's happening and then you see the sheriff arrive and you learn that Harris is just wasted and is like chuckling it off. And the sheriff like walks him to the car and it's, it actually makes him seem like a very sad um, and kind of a lonely individual this whole moment, to be honest. Mm, yeah, I, I see that. Uh, but it also is very like a just a very outrageous thing to do. Uh, and it's his like, and you know, it goes back to him telling Sarah, if she doesn't get rid of the documentary crew, he will. And so this is his way to do it. I do love the sheriff though. This is, I, I like that there is a sort of a very minor, but it's there. I'm telling you, it's there. I'm not trying to find lesbian gay shit where it doesn't exist. But I think there is a very small hint that her and Sarah have maybe something going on or they've had it in the past. Did you get that? Oh, Sheriff yeah. Tweed. Oh, I definitely got hardcore former, former lesbian lover vibes. Oh, that's what I, yeah. Mind. Cause there's the moment where she's outside and the camera crew spying on them. And, and Sheriff is like, I've heard what's happened to your mother. I, I feel bad. If there's anything I can do for you, Sarah, just let me know. And I do mean anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a, a palpable lust between these two dames. You could tell, you could tell that, that Sarah wants to go back down one more time. Uh, her girlfriend, her girlfriend in uh, Richland is a mere memory when she's around uh, Sheriff Tweed. <laughs> yeah. Who doesn't like a woman in uniform? Oh yeah. She looks good in the uniform too. Uh, the next day, Gavin does the sensible thing. He should have, and he gets the fuck out. Like literally he leaves and doesn't come back. Um, does not come back. This is, yeah. He's like, fuck you. If you guys had any brains, you would get the fuck out of here. And you know, Mia's like, no, just stay. And she's like, fuck you. I'm gone. He leaves and he doesn't. That's the last we see of him. Good decision, dude, because you could have ended up like the sheriff. Best choice in the movie. <laughs> yes. Yes. Deborah's at the hospital and apparently she has left her hospital room. We're seeing this through security camera footage that has been edited. She has left her hospital and she goes into the room of this little cancer girl. What's her name? Um, Kara. Kara, Kara, the little cancer patient girl. 
The little cancer girl. It's like the little match girl, <laughs> only for cancer. Is that how you refer to someone with cancer? I don't. I, did, I could not girl. remember her name, but she has cancer and she's a little girl. And they make it, you know, they, they put a bald cap on her to make it look like she's going through chemotherapy. They struck a few strands of hair on it. And I'm thinking to myself, is it this easy for people just to wander into a little girl's room and, and get her? But apparently it is. Nobody's there watching her. I will also say that the the parents are like calling the hospital out on that. Like, because like you see the parents panicking and they're like, how did you lose our child to this woman? With I would assume the parents would be there with their daughter. I don't know. I guess you can't be with your, your kid 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But, um, but yeah, but Deborah Logan is leading this little Kara out of her room down the hallway. And, you know, this causes, yeah, this causes panic. There's an alert, there's an alarm that goes off and all the, the hospital uh, security and, and the parents are there throwing a fucking fit and the, they search and they're searching, 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 and they go into what appears to be like the, a kitchen area of the hospital and they see, and it's the doctor, she sees Deborah standing hand like side by side face facing the wall with the little girl. And you know, the doctor's like, Deborah, I know she's your friend, but we got to get her back to her room. You can visit her any, anytime. And she gets the little girl away from Deborah. And I, I thought it was weird. Like this little girl is, are we supposed to assume that this little girl is under some sort of spell? Because, throughout the whole course with this little girl, this little girl is like literally just walking hand in hand and then like standing there staring at the wall right along with Deborah and not saying anything. Like I would assume this little girl would be like, Get, leave me alone. I'm going back to my room. Like, why are you standing there staring at the wall with this girl and not and this old lady and not saying anything? It was kind of weird. I think it's implied, especially as it progresses pretty heavily that she, whenever she's around Deborah, she is under a trance is what I took away from it because you always see her walk right to Deborah. whenever Deborah gets to like within a certain uh radius of her she gets up out of her bed for example and walks to Deborah and just takes her by the hand and they start walking together so yeah it is creepy well but there's that moment too where she later on where she's like oh this sweet guy he just wants to help me and i'm like okay so they get Deborah back to her room and restrain her in the bed as she growls um, and she's growling and flailing. And this is when Sarah's like had enough. And Sarah's like desperately get grasping at what can I do to, to help my mother? So she finds the priest and asks him to perform an exorcism. And this priest is like, no, Sarah, we don't do exorcisms. That's basically science fiction. We don't do them anymore. And, and you know, maybe we can do something else. And Sarah's like, no, dude, this is something really wrong is happening here. You, you have to know somebody that can do an exorcism, one of your mentors. And he is adamant that the church does not do exorcisms anymore. So they get a little bit more desperate and Mia goes and puts Sarah in touch with this anthropologist who, you know, they show him the video of how uh, Deborah has been acting during these crazy outbursts. And he has the hypothesis that, Oh, well, it seems your mother has become obsessed with the Desjardins to the point where she thinks that she is him. And Sarah's like, no, man, this is something way beyond that. And he proceeds to tell them the story of a mother whose son died from like tuberculosis or something. 
and she refused to let go of his corpse for a month. She held on to this corpse and he shows her pictures and he, she's like, he's like, and when we tried to get the corpse away from her after, after a certain amount of time, she literally took on her child's voice, his personality, his mannerisms. Um, and it wasn't until a witch doctor showed up and broke the, the curse, he calls it, by setting the kid's body on fire. Flesh to ash. Ash to, and he also does mention the fact that yes, there is such a thing as like spirits and and whatnot latching onto very vulnerable souls, like people that are terminally ill, people, elderly people, people that are are, are weak. That we, you will have these spirits, malevolent spirits that will attach onto these souls easier, easier, or because they're easy targets. Um, you know, there's always in in every one of these movies, there's always a character that's introduced. Uh, for the sake of exposition. As, again, we saw it in Dark Skies. I think that this is handled really well. Um, it's made to feel very um, re- reasonable, all things considered, for what it is. And it's brief. They don't spend too much time on it. Meanwhile, Harris has entered Deborah's room where she instructs him to bolt the door and then asks him to kill her. And he obliges. He picks up a pillow and he begins to smother her. And it goes on for a moment until the television in the top corner, right in the camera, begins to shake and violently rips off the wall and collides right with Harris's head. And it, the camera cuts away just as it makes impact. It's it's quite a startling moment when it happens. Yeah, and you know, obviously he's been severely injured. I'm assuming to the point where maybe he died. Uh, but but before he's able to be you know operated on or or assisted or whatever or whatever happens, to, we don't know what if he dies. We don't know really what happens to him. Sarah rushes to his bedside before the um, elder orderlies can pull her away, and this is when Harris reveals to her that she was supposed to be Desjardins' fifth victim. And that when her mother found out that he was trying to kill her, she actually stabbed him in the neck with her spade. And then her and him, meaning Deborah and Harris, buried him alive in the woods. And as she's being pulled away by security, she's like, where did you bury him, Paris? Where? And he he does get out by the statue. I gotta say, when you think about who Deborah Logan is and how she acts and the kind of prim and proper woman she is. When you find this out, it's shocking. Um, And it's also very sad when you start to realize exactly what the story is and what's going on. Um, This woman, yes, she killed somebody, but this woman did what she had to do to, to, to save her child. Well, she killed a serial killer. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I mean, exactly. She did something fucking respectable, let's be real. And knowing how this movie progresses and knowing how things do, you know, build and climax, I have so much sympathy for Deborah's character. She really um, gets the short end of the stick in this bar. Yeah, because there's it's really not a happy ending at all, honestly. Um, Sarah rushes back home and she is frantically digging up the spot that Harris said they, that they buried the body in front of this little statue and they don't, she's not finding anything right away. And Mia and Lewis are telling her, stop, there's nothing here. Like you really think there's a dead body here. And just as, just as she's about to give up digging her, her shovel hits something hard 
and she goes bends down and, and pulls the dirt away and we see that it is a buried uh garden trowel her her garden spade and sarah comes to the realization that oh shit mother got here before we did so she must have took the body out of this spot so they run inside and there's this kind of prolonged uh scene of them going through the house looking for clues as to where this body could be um they go to the basement they check several closets they go into bedrooms until sarah notices the ceiling uh by the attic door is has been discolored by water that has leaked through or some sort of dark disgusting liquid so they pull down the latch they go up in the attic and lo and behold as they're searching mia finds this burlap sack they pull it out and it is the body or what's left of the body of Desjardines. It's a very elaborate setup to the discovery of the body, which is literally just in a sack. But I'm going to take it and I'm going to buy it because of the fact that they're really trying to get the story moving in a shaken at this point. Like it is just nonstop action. They're trying to tell a lot of story um, and they're doing it pretty damn well. There are times that the story feels like they're maybe pushing it just a little bit, like they're really trying to push it along. Um, but overall, it never like goes off the tracks, you know. And I do like that Lewis starts to really become like the voice of the audience right about now. Like everything that I'm thinking, he is saying. I do appreciate having a character like that. Um, so the body's discovered between the floorboards, and they all react appropriately in the moment. Um, and Sarah's like, you know what? I'm going to fucking do it. I'm going to be the one that destroys it. Let's just get it over with. Let's go put it in the fireplace. So she goes down to the fireplace. She sits the bag, the, the burlap bag down with the body in it. And when they go to lift it back up, the bag is suddenly just filled with snakes. And there was definitely not snakes in it before. So that's terrifying. And when we say snakes, we're saying like shit ton of snakes. I mean, long, fat long, snakes. Yeah. Long, black Oh yeah, asps yep. or something. Yeah, and yeah. it's startling, and everyone's screaming, but they still try to burn the body. And um, there's this moment, this kind of exaggerated moment, where they put the body in the fireplace, and they're trying to use like a grill lighter to light it up, and they're like spraying um, lighter fluid all over it. And finally, they get it to light up for a second. All of a sudden, the goddamn fireplace just explodes, and these two women just go flying backwards. And like, it's such a big reaction. I was not. <laughs> I remember when I first saw this, I was not anticipating this at all. But uh, these women, like, they will not give up. I got to give them that. They won't give up. No, they're in it for the long haul. And they run out of the house. And as they run out of the house, you catch a glimpse of a male figure watching them from the window. When And they all see it. And it's real quick. And we see it, but it's super quick. And it's super creepy because we know there's no male that is in this house. And so they run out. And as they're running... Uh, Sarah actually gets a call from the hospital that tells her your mother is escaped again. So they get to the hospital and they see that her bed is, she's not in her bed, but it's covered in blood. And now we see, now we see more footage from the security camera of her with that little girl again, Kara, and she's walking her down the hall. And there is this scene. We see that this security guard tries to stop her and she leaps onto his chest and bites his neck and starts walking out of the hospital and it is revealed through dialogue because when the doctor is talking to sarah about you know what happened and she's like hey you know your mother broke out she injured this cop he went into uh he went into shock and 
Sarah's like, what? What did he go into shock from? And she's like, snake venom. Yeah. I like the little little details like that because it does make sense. It does come back into play. And you hear little things like that. Like you said, you've got to listen for little pieces of dialogue. But if you do, you catch these little things that all add up together. I, I do like this moment here with, with, with her ripping the damn uh, security guards throat out. It's pretty, pretty graphic, pretty awesome. Um, and there's another moment prior where you see the footage of her waking in her bed and you mentioned how her bed was, you know, all bloody, which was pretty gross. So you do see the moment of her leaving the bed in which she literally, in order to get out of her restraints, cause she's bound to the bed, she sheds the skin on her hands as though she was like a snake. She sheds the skin and it is, fucking disgusting oh my god i think i can't think of anything more disgusting to me than like sheaths of skin coming off of hands and things like that Ugh, the muscle underneath revealed it's so gross so and like like let's be real this fucking hospital like these parents are pissed and understandably so okay one time is bad enough two times you let this woman abduct my child i get it she's violently attacking people but you can't tell me there's not enough people there to restrain this tiny little old woman oh yeah but she gets out pretty pretty easily they have kind of figured out where she's going that she's going to this mine because of you know what they learned about desjardin and they've kind of come to the conclusion that she has to be possessed by him so they follow her out to the mine and they're right because she got into apparently she got into a car and drove to this mine because she abandoned the car by the road. Uh, and they go start running towards the mine and they do, they find her with the little girl standing in the middle of the, the field. And this is when like the little girl is just standing there saying this, this man is nice to me. This man is being nice to me. That's all she can say. You know, and the sheriff, Sheriff Tweed is trying to talk some sense into her and the deputy approaches her and she turns around and spits at him. And whatever it's, she spits, it must be some like poisonous venice because his whole face is like covered in blood and everything. And this allows her to, to get away some more. So she's just cruising for an old an old woman. Yeah, I mean, she's moving quick. Kara, what she's saying, just because I heard it so many times that I haven't memorized is, don't hurt him. He's a nice man. He He's going to wash me in the river. Like, okay, bitch, I... This river that I keep hearing about washing in, I've heard about it multiple times over the course of this movie. That does not sound like a good river. I'm imagining a river of blood, something along those lines. Um, But this child is definitely in a trance. She's definitely like hypnotized and under the spell. Um, And and Deborah is just full on just spitting fucking acid at people like you do, you know? And she takes off into the woods with the child. Um, And this is the moment where... Uh, they strategically have Mia go to Lewis and say, Lewis, take this officer to the hospital. You're the only one he can do, who can do it. And he's like, are you kidding me? So Lewis is, the last thing we see of Lewis is is basically we don't see him. We just know he's gone. <laughs> he's just, all of a sudden he's left the scenario. Yeah, so it's just the three women. And the sheriff goes ahead and follows the path to the mine. And they get to the entrance and she tells Sarah and Mia to wait for her. She goes into the mine alone. Now, I don't know. You know, I don't know what sheriff in their right mind is going to let like just two, you know, random people <laughs> accompany her to what could end up being a, a horrible situation and ends up being a horrible situation. 
Um, but hey, whatever. It's Sheriff Tweed. We'll give her the benefit of doubt. But all of a sudden, as Mia or as Mia and and Sarah are waiting, something breaks through the window, which is a pretty that scared the shit out of me. Actually, I don't even know what it is, but it, something comes crashing through the window. I think it's um it's her gun going off. Is it okay? Yeah, I don't know what, uh, yeah. but it scared the shit out of me. Oh yeah. Sarah goes in to the mine and sees poor Sheriff Tweed dead on the ground, covered in snakes. By the way. Covered in snakes, Sarah and Mia go deeper into the mine. All of a sudden, you hear the little girl screaming. So she must be out of the trance now. But there are snakes everywhere as they're crawling through cubby holes, trying to find out where the scream is coming from. They find, they actually get to the a dead end and they see Deborah there. And Sarah kind of sneaks up to her to sedate her. But before she can, Deborah attacks them in a very aggressive way i mean she has mia down on the ground like on top of her uh as we see through the camera it's pretty brutal um and deb deborah gets away again yeah this whole finale continues to build and build and build and build and like it doesn't give you a single moment to, to get your breath um and it does it all really well like i first of all i love that it's just these two dames I mean, technically four females altogether. Well, technically five when you include the sheriff, uh, but she dies pretty quick. But you got Deborah, you got uh, Kara, and then you got Sarah and Mia. And these are the focal characters for the final chunk of the film. And it's these four women. Um, and, the, you know, and obviously the two women are trying their damnedest to climb through all these motherfucking snakes to try to, you know, free Deborah or, or take care of business, basically. Um, but I really like the dynamic between the two characters because Sarah is just no nonsense getting it fucking done. And at this point, Mia is starting to become a bit overwhelmed with the situation and understandably so, man. Fucking understandably so. Like, if you think about what's going on around her, Jesus Christ, I'd be flipping my shit too. But it makes for like a really kind of like just stressful, anxiety-filled finale. Um, and that does it a lot of favor because after she takes off and in, into the cave system, they chase after her and they take um, they take the camera and they turn into like night vision. So now on top of everything, it's also like in like pitch black night vision mode. So that's even more terrifying. It keeps just building and building upon itself. When it builds to probably the most famous scene of the film, right? As they as they go deeper into this cavernous mine, they they finally come across Deborah and the little girl, and you can see Deborah's nightgown protruding from behind a like a, a pillar. And as they go around the corner, you see the image that has become. I think, I think every, I think tons. I think horror fans know this image, even if they've never seen the film, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, this is this has become a, a quite a famous gif or jif or however you want to say it i mean i've seen it posted all all over the place but it is the image of deborah whose mouth is now huge like a snake literally eating the head of the little girl like her whole this little girl's whole head is in the mouth of deborah who is now a full-fledged demonic looking creature it is quite disturbing Everything that's built up to this point has been like you thought it was already big enough, to be honest, because you've had like syringes and snakes and you just didn't think it could get any more wild. And all of a sudden it takes this like fantastical turn 
And, you know, there's some incorporation of some CGI, but I really don't fucking mind it. It's rather well done, all things considered. And when you see Deborah, she is like full snake, jaw stretch and dislocated, swallowing Kara, who is like seemingly totally down for this. Uh, she's all about it. And then there's a gunshot. And and in, in the midst of the commotion, we get what is, again, another very digital but very highly effective snake mouth reveal as Deborah roars. We see a rather clear shot of it. Um, and Sarah starts urging her to fight against uh, Dehardid. And, and apparently she's able to kind of fight back just long enough for... Sarah to step in and jab the syringe into her mother's neck. Which, yeah, which sedates her and allows Sarah and Mia to finally set this burlap sack with the remains of Desjardins on fire. And it actually works. Uh, there's a huge explosion and some staticky from the camera, but when it comes back into a clear picture, Deborah has been released. She is sobbing on the floor. She looks normal now. Her skin is back to normal. Her her hand she's been burned from the flames. Her hands are all burned and there's some burn marks on her face, but she looks rather normal now. And she's sobbing and and her and Sarah embrace. This shot of of her weeping is so heartbreaking cuz she's just so fucking damaged and gone she's just you could see it in her face she just has no idea anything that's happened and you just feel for her because she's literally just been like a vessel for this fucking motherfucker to like kind of possess her and take her over to do his dirty work and it's only because she's been in this weakened state she hasn't done anything wrong i mean you feel for this poor thing well and you you feel for her even more kind of in this the final 30 seconds of the film, which is kind of like, I guess would be like maybe a little epilogue. It's, it's basically news footage. Um, and we find out that Deborah has been, you know, she was apprehended and she cannot stand trial for the murder of the sheriff. She's been charged with the murder of the sheriff, but she's not, she can't stand trial because of her advanced deteriorated state. And there are scenes of her like being pushed in a wheelchair, looking all like shriveled and like, she can't, talk she's not in a good state whatsoever and then there is a new segment with little Kara and it's her 10th birthday and the news anchors there and he's all excited you know and she's totally recovered from her leukemia she has full head of beautiful hair now and they're calling her the miracle child and the reporter's asking her Kara you know what are you going to do you know how are you feeling you know for your birthday what 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 do you what do you want to do and she's like i don't know and he's like, well, what are you going to do when you get older, when you grow old and you're right? And she's like, I have a plan. And he's like, well, what is your plan? And she's like, it's a secret. And as he's talking, she looks directly into the camera with this extremely sinister grin on her face. This little girl doesn't do a whole lot in the movie, but God, does she edit on a fucking creepy expression? Jesus Christ, that face. Yes, the eye of the eyeball, like the one eyeball is almost all white because of the way her eye and her this just grin. And so then the film ends. So we are left to assume that she has been now possessed by Desjardins and that the whole ritual worked and he will have eternal life through this little girl. And Deborah Logan, in the meantime, is going to wither away to nothing. So he won. I mean, like literally at the end of the day, 
you find out that the evil force in this in this film succeeded and it does leave you feeling very like oh (laughs) (laughs) it literally ends on that note you don't find out what happened to mia and her film and what what kind of became of her you don't really find out what happened with sarah you know that deborah is has got the, like you said, she definitely got dealt the worst hand because she is probably in jail, right? I mean, she they're charging her for murder, but she is not in a good condition. You know, her life force was basically extinguished out by this Desjardins who she only killed because he tried to kill her daughter. You know, it's just a sad state of affairs. And yes, the this is the one, this is one of the cases where evil wins. Yeah, it's it's quite a sad ending to end on, but a powerful one nonetheless. It's a, a strong ending to a really fucking strong movie. I mean, beginning to end, I have very few uh, critiques or criticisms for this film. Um, I absolutely find it to be one of the standout titles within the found footage horror genre, um, especially within the last uh, 10 years. And I just think it's a film that you don't even need to be a huge fan of that niche genre to still appreciate this as a horror film. It is just an expertly crafted horror film. It's often terrifying and it's extremely effective. Yeah, no, it is one of the more effective found footage films out there. I think, I mean, it's definitely in the top 10, you know, if you had to make a a list of 10 of the 10 best found footage films out there, I think this would definitely be among them. It's so well done. It's uh, the story that it's telling is so unique. There's so much unique, so many unique elements to the film that just make it stand out. It's not, you know, it's not your standard, you know, paranormal activity type film. It's there's so much deeper things going on in the film. Um, I love the storyline. I love, I do love, even though there, like I said, even though there is paranormal elements and supernormal supernatural elements i like how it's handled i actually like the story that's there that that is is a thread that's running through what this whole film is about i really think it's unique and i I like it so i mean yeah i mean i'm just gonna say it's it's this is a a really good i mean i would say even this is a great film i i highly i tend to recommend this one quite a bit when people are looking for something that you know they think is they're asking, Oh, I need a film that's going to creep me out. I, I, I recommend this one quite a bit. This is one of my top recommendations. Absolutely. Like just in general, if people say what's a film within the last 10 years that, Oh, that scared the shit out of you. And I, I always go taking a Deborah Logan top, one of the tops for sure. I, I love this movie. Um, I can watch it time and time again. Um, not just for being horrifying, but because it's, it's, filled with fantastic acting performances from everybody. Um, I, I really, really just enjoy every aspect of this film, everything that makes it move and work. Yeah, no, great film. It's an example that found footage can still be highly effective if done right. If you have an original enough idea, you have the talent enough to pull it off and you have a, a cast that's going to be completely uh, on board and devoted to what you're trying to do, you can really make something highly highly effective this is a a wonderful film creepy even even a third fourth fifth viewing of this film it still gets under my skin so great choice guys i mean that's the taking of deborah logan um let us know your thoughts on this film in the comments when we post this episode let us know your thoughts um 
Also, reminder, you know, the Apple Podcast rating review. Do that for us if you would be so inclined. And next week, we are coming at you with some very, I would say, unique or different type of of material that we generally haven't really covered on the regular feed. We've done, we've done, you know, we did um, Obsessed and Lisa on our Patreon, two titles that we probably wouldn't have ever covered on um, this main feed. But I think this next film we're doing kind of falls under that umbrella. It's going to allow us to have a little bit of a different type of conversation. And that is Poison Ivy, the Drew Barrymore film. Yeah. So if if you've not seen that one, check it out. Drew Barrymore, Sarah Gilbert. Um, But yeah, that's what more could you want? What more could you want? Um, so yeah. Any, any final thoughts, Roger? Just, I mean, if you listened through this goddamn review and you hadn't seen taking a Deborah Logan, I'm pissed at you. I'm pissed at you and I'll forgive you. But next time, listen to us before you listen to us, because we don't want to spoil anything for you. We want you to experience the fear firsthand. And I do think taking a Deborah Logan is a film. That has a lot to be uh, feared and a lot to react to. And um, I hope to watch more horror movies that make me feel the same way I feel when I watch this. It's been a long time since I can think of a, a recent title that impacted me as much as this one does. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Hopefully we get some 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 great horror. We know that there's a lot on the horizon. Let's just hope that they end up being good. Um, on, yeah, so on that note, guys, again, check out the Patreon if you want bonus material patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast and until then until we uh get some itching and a scratching with poison ivy next week you guys have a great evening and a great week have a great one guys bye